Hey, everyone. Um, don't worry, Brian is still the lead pastor here. Uh, we make jokes that if he takes two weeks off, people always start asking, like, is Brian going somewhere? Where, where's Brian? What's going on? I'm Peter. I'm the middle school youth pastor here at Grace Monroe. Um, if this is your first time with us, we are super excited you are here. Um, we started last week, or Benji started us with this this new series we're doing, Meals with Jesus, where we're diving into Luke, and we're taking a look at every meal that Jesus had that was of substance, um, and we notice that there's all of these, these cool things that happen when Jesus sits down at the table, and I think there's several different reasons for that. So today we're actually going to be in Luke 7, if you want to go ahead and turn there. If you do not have a Bible, just slip your hand up. We've got a few people walking around with Bibles, so we'd love to hand you one. If you don't have one at home, please take one of our Bibles home. It is our gift to you. Take it. We don't want it. You need it. Um, so we will be in Luke 7 if you want to go ahead and start flipping there. But we're taking a look at all of these meals with Jesus. And... I think that's really cool. I read somewhere that a meal with Jesus is the one place that we get to see his 100% man and his 100% God at work. This is where he feeds his flesh and we get to see him feed his spirit. We have a tendency to separate the two beings of Jesus, his 100% Godship or his 100% manship. And in these moments, we get to see both alive and in action. And I think that's just really cool. And, and the meaning of meals in the Jewish culture as a whole is so, so important. I actually dated a Jewish girl in high school. I was a missionary dater, guilty. I've repented of that sin, don't worry. It only lasted like three weeks. But I'm, I was dating this Jewish girl in high school and she invited me over for dinner. And I had no idea what that meant when I said yes. So I was sitting down with her parents. This was a five-hour meal. This was a Tuesday night. This was just a normal dinner. It was a five-hour meal, four courses. And she would get up and cook a course and then bring it to the table and we'd all sit and eat. And then when we were all done, some of them would get up and go to the couch and some would stay at the table and we'd just sit and we would talk as she readied the next course. And then she'd bring that over and we'd eat and it just went on like that. Now, also in this household, they only spoke Hebrew, <laughs> so I was lost. I had no idea what was happening. I sat there for five hours nodding, saying, good, whatever that need is. I don't know what it is. Um, but the, the importance of meals as a culture for the Jewish people is just baffling. And Jewish from, or in Jesus, wow, from Jewish descent, and all of his followers from Jewish descent, meals are holy. They are an important part of the culture. And as an important part of the culture, these are things that we need to dive into and look at as important parts of Jesus's ministry. Now, we also have a tendency in these meals to see Jesus as the dad. He, like, directs the meal and everything. But what I've realized in studying the meals of Jesus is he's more like that strange uncle that you avoid at Thanksgiving. He's literally a conspiracy theorist. Like, I love the picture. Of, don't get me wrong. Jesus is God. God is our Father. He is holy. But he's also sitting at a table with Jewish people saying... You'll never believe this. We don't have to kill animals anymore. Like, that's the conspiracy theorist of Jesus. And everyone's like, what? You're an idiot. What are you talking about? And we get to see the most of that here because we're talking about Jesus sitting with Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of the day. Not only religious, but the cultural leaders of the day. There was no separation of church and state in the Jewish culture. The Jews were, were ran by Rome, and Rome gave the Pharisees 
rule of their certain territories so that the Jewish people would remain quiet. And so the Pharisees not only made religious law, but that carried over into their actual law. They had the ability to kill people based off of their beliefs in the Bible, legally. That's what we're talking about. Jesus is sitting down with these people as the conspiracy theorist crazy uncle saying, I'm gonna save you, but I'm gonna do it by dying, not by overthrowing Rome. So, like I said, we're gonna be in Luke 7. We're gonna be in verses 36 through 50 today. 36 through 50. If you're there, say, got it. All right, before we dive into the word, I am gonna pray. Dear God, thank you for allowing us to come together today to come here to Grace Monroe and be a part of your body. Thank you for inviting us here to do a good work within us. God, I pray that as we dive into your scripture that you show us your holy word, that you show us the meaning behind these words, what your intent was, not my intent, not Brian's intent, not the intent of people, but your intent for these words, Lord. Let anything that I say that is errant fall upon deaf ears. Take anything out of my mouth that is not of you. And Lord, I pray that you will use me as a mouthpiece today. In your holy name we pray, amen. All right, so like I said, Luke 7, verse 36 through 50. We're just gonna dive right in. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair of her head, and kissed his feet, anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is. He would have known who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, so in this story, I'm a visual person, so I'm gonna need some volunteers. Anybody wanna come up? Anyone, anyone? Everyone's scared? Great, come on up. I need one more. All right, Miss Julie, come on. Let's do it. All right, so this meal, this Pharisee invited Jesus to his house. Now the reason that we can see him doing this is this Pharisee wants to test Jesus' knowledge of scripture. 
Okay, this Pharisee, the only reason he would invite another teacher into his house is so that they could mull over the word, mull over the law of God, okay? Now, it says in the passage that she sat behind Jesus at his feet. When we think of a traditional table that we sit at, we have no idea how that works. How can you be behind someone and at their feet? And it's because they said Jesus was reclined at the table. So this is tradition in Jewish cultures. If I could have you lay here on your left elbow and put your feet out. Perfect, perfect. I'm gonna get you to twist this way a little bit. So feet over here, head over here. Perfect. All right, this is Jesus. Everyone say hello. Miss Julie, if you will do the same over here, but lay on your left elbow. Left elbow is very specific in the Jewish culture. I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't know why. Um, But that is what they said. Customarily, you'd lay on your left elbow. This is how they would be eating. (laughs) This is how they would be eating. There'd be a table here. Miss Julie's head might be over here and her feet over there, so we're all facing the table. But there'd be a small table, very low to the ground, and this is how they would eat. Yeah. Now, obviously, because of my hair, I'm going to play our, uh, our prostitute. Um, so she was standing at the feet of Jesus. We were standing at the feet of Jesus and started to weep, weeping tears that wet his feet. And she falls to her knees and she takes her hair and she wipes them down. And then she takes out her ointment or her perfume as most um, original Greek things will have it. She'll anoint the feet. And this is the picture we see. This shows how sacred a meal is. In this posture, you cannot be afraid of anyone at the table. You cannot be afraid of anything. This is a peaceful posture, a posture of reclining, of relaxation, where we can talk for hours on end without our feet falling asleep. We can talk for hours and mull over scripture. Thank you guys, thank you so much. Everybody give them a round of applause. So that's the importance of the meal that we see here. Now, this woman didn't just walk into some random person's house. That's probably not what happened. Most likely, when the Pharisees invited Jesus over, they wanted to make him a laughing stock. They were like, we're going to show everyone. This teacher has no idea what he's talking about. So they maybe invited parts of the town, parts of their church who would know Scripture, who would understand Scripture, and they would come and stand around the table and listen. They would listen to the teachings, listen as these Pharisees, these religious leaders, and Jesus mold over Scripture together. Now, all of those people were invited to come and listen to teaching because they knew Scripture. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that this woman, who we know is a prostitute, anytime it says she's living in sin, the original Greek says that she was a woman of the city. Sorry. Um, She's a woman of the city, meaning a prostitute. Do you think she would have gotten an invite? No. There's no way this Pharisee, we see based off of his reaction in verse 39, I believe it is. um, Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is. Who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Based on that reaction, there's no way she got an invite. There's no way that she was told, hey, come and listen to all of this. Come and listen to these teachings. But what she heard, and what we see in the passage, is she heard Jesus was coming. She heard that the man who healed the blind, 
who made the deaf hear, who made the lame walk, was coming to her city, coming to her town. And as she lay there in her sin, she knew, I've got to experience this man. I have got to come and see him for myself. I have got to come to the table and listen to what he has to say. And that brings me to my first point that she wasn't welcome. She wasn't invited, but she was so willing. And how often do we use the excuse in our church of, oh, well, I don't, I don't feel welcome there. I don't feel invited there. And that's the first question I have for you. I'm gonna have four questions. Um, I apologize because Benji preached last week and he said he was gonna preach a high challenge sermon. You're gonna get two in a row, sorry. (laughs) Hope I don't hurt anyone's feelings. I'm gonna try to pepper in some grace and some invitation, don't worry. Um, But I just think that there's so much more we can be living into. So that's my first question. Are you really unwelcome or just unwilling? To come to the table You know how easy it would have been For this woman to be like well you know what If I need to hear the words of Jesus I'm going to go to synagogue the next day And maybe the Pharisee will talk about Jesus The exact same way that we do Of Well, well Jesus likes to sit at a table With Brian Krozik, or Or he likes to Experience worship from Addie But not me I'll take Brian's word For what he hears from Jesus and I'm speaking to myself here. I mean, I, there are so many people that I look up to, Benji being one of them. Benji's ability to hear from God, his spirit, I'm so like, oh man, I love that God talks to Benji that way. I, what, I wonder what God is gonna tell Benji to tell me. He wants me at the table, guys. He wants me to sit there with him and experience him in the way that he talks to you and I. That's all he asks for. We are all invited to this table. We may not have been invited by the Pharisees. We may not have been invited physically, but even on those days that we don't feel invited, when we don't feel welcome, is our willingness enough to overcome that? Is our willingness to come and sit with Jesus and be with Jesus enough that we can overcome the unwelcomeness we feel, the strangeness it feels, How many of you guys have been to a, show of hands, a meal that you had no business going to? Whether it be because of the people there or when you walk in and see there's four forks and you're like, way too fancy for me? That's me, 100%. I remember the first time I was having a fancy dinner with some of my family members and I walked in and the table was set and they, one whole part of the family had all matching outfits with all of their little babies and they were so cute and like traditional Southern. And I walked in and I was like, I don't know what to do with my hands. Um, I don't know which fork to use. There's like four cups that I don't know what to use. Um, and I remember one of, uh, one of our cousins was just like me and he made jokes about it the whole time. And it made me feel so comfortable. It brought me to this place of like, oh good, I'm not the only one. I'm not alone here. And that's what I imagined for this woman. She came to this meal thinking like, I don't know what to do with my hands. Now, maybe the answer is kind of weird to touch a man's feet with them, but she did it. And that man had the same response as she did of like, you're welcome here. It's okay. It's okay you don't know what you're doing. That's not what I ask for. I just ask that you come. 
Can you imagine living in like your worst, ugliest sin, the sin that you hate the most that you know you participate in? Can you imagine living in it every single day and you hear that this Friday, Jesus is gonna come to the first Friday concert and before that, he's gonna have a dinner with all the pastors in town. Would you invite yourself to that table to hear him speak or would you run? I'm gonna be out of town that week. I don't know if I wanna hear what Jesus has to say about me and my sin. And this woman just overcomes it. And that's the lesson we have to learn from this woman. That she came to dinner. She overcame everything that was holding her back. But not only did she come, she brought everything she had with her. If you, if you look in verse 37 and 38, verse 37 and 38, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table, the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. She had this perfume, as the original Greek tells us, a perfume in an alabaster jar. For those of you who don't know, alabaster is a very, very important, expensive material. It's like a granite marble. And if, if you're unsure on what it is, just go to Song of Solomon. If they use it in a pickup line, it's a good thing. If they don't use it, it's probably bad. It's a lesson I learned. Weird pickup lines in Song of Solomon, but if you filter everything through there, if it's mentioned, it's probably good because it's a pickup line. Um, and he, she says, your legs are like alabaster pillars, strong alabaster pillars. These are things of value. These are things that, that evoke a happiness to people. This is a very important jar of perfume. It's very expensive. She had to save up months and months and months for this. So when she comes to the feet of Jesus, she brings everything she has. And that's, that's my question to you, is are you bringing it all to the table? Everything that you have. Because you see, we have a tendency in the church to bring our brokenness to the table. We bring our sin to the table. We have a whole sermon surrounding the idea of, oh, we've got a cross and you're gonna come and you're gonna, you're gonna write a confession note and we're gonna put it on the cross and we're gonna pray it away and we're gonna put it at the feet of Jesus. And we're so quick to bring our sins to the foot of the cross and so quick to take our blessings to the bank. Everything that he gives you, you're like, oh man, look at what I did. Look at this great house that the Lord has given me. What are you doing with it? How are, you, how are you juxtaposing it? How are you moving it to serve the kingdom of God? She brought everything. This alabaster jar is probably the most expensive thing she had ever worked for. And she brought it to the feet of Jesus and said, it's yours. I don't want it anymore. Do with it what you will. And I'm not talking about just writing a big check now, I'm not going to stop you if you want to on your way out. Feel free to write a big check. That's necessary. But I'm talking about more than that. Every aspect of who you are and what you do, every blessing that the Lord has given you, what are you doing to leverage it for the kingdom of God? How are you turning it and transforming it to an instrument that he can use instead of the one that you can use? Because what we see is that if we are using instruments for our own entertainment and our own joy, they become sinful almost immediately. We see that here. So let's talk about everything the woman used to wash the feet of Jesus, everything she brought to the feet of Jesus. If you turn to John 4, verse 1 through 10, 
We're gonna look at a different passage. It'll also be on the screen if you don't wanna turn there and turn back. I, do, I use a lot of scripture when I teach. Hope that's okay. So John 4, verses one through 10. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son. Joseph, Jacob's well, was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is 12 o'clock noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, the reason I wanted to go to this passage is because what we see here is at noon in the desert near the equator where seasons basically don't exist this woman is coming at the highest point of the sun to get water. Now, the only reason she would do that is because the Jews live in an honor and shame culture, and this woman was living in shame. The other women in the town would not have wanted her coming to get water with them. They, she would make them unclean just by her presence. That's the belief system they had. And so when you look at this, this other prostitute that we read about in Luke... If you think about, if this was even a premeditated, which I'm not sure it is, if it was premeditated for her to go and wash the feet of Jesus, she would have had to go at noon to get water in the heat of the day. So a lot of times, these women living in sin, they wouldn't even go get water because they could die on the way, walking all the way out to the well in the middle of the heat of the day. And a lot of times, she, they would actually take water as payment this woman didn't have any water to spare on the feet of Jesus, but she brought her tears. Even when she had ran out of water, she brought her tears. She, she takes her hands, who most likely, based off of the text that we see, had probably not touched a man non-sexually in years and washed his feet. She takes her hair down, which in the Jewish culture, when you become married, you would cover your hair because it's a show of of basically modesty. Or when you would reach a certain age, even if you weren't married, you'd cover your hair. In, in today's context, this would be similar to if someone was up here washing my feet, a woman, and takes her shirt off. Everyone in here would be like, ooh, that's what? It's jarring. She takes this hair, which is known as a symbol of modesty, that she has not been modest, and, and scrubs his feet. She takes this perfume. Now, I said this perfume was in an alabaster jar. When she was putting her perfume on, if she wasn't married, there'd be no one to see that jar. Why would she need such an expensive jar of perfume? And it's because it sat on her bedside table so that in between customers, she could anoint the bed because no one wants to lay in a bed that smells like another man. All of these things that she brought to Jesus when used to her own devices are sinful. And she brought them. And it didn't even have to be perfect. Jesus didn't ask for it to be perfect. If we're honest with ourselves, how clean do you think Jesus' feet got from tears and hair? Not very clean. 
This was not a proper ceremonial foot washing that you would see in the Jewish culture. But she brought what she had, and she did what she could, and Jesus was fine with it. And it actually reminds me of this story um, that a friend of mine told me a while ago. And there's a man, he's sitting on a couch watching the game, and he's eating some buffalo wings, and he's got about a six- or seven-year-old daughter. She comes over and she goes, Dad, can I have some of your wings? And he says, of course you can. Of course, I love that you love wings. Please go get a plate and come over here and I'll give you a few. She goes, okay, great. She runs into the kitchen. She climbs up on the china cabinet to get a plate from one of the closer to top shelves. Her weight displaces the cabinet to where it falls. It starts to fall. Now, thankfully, it didn't fall on her. It, it kind of got caught on the wall. Um, but when it hit the wall, the front door shattered and covered her with glass. And then after the front door is shattered, all of the plates start coming out. So she had fallen to the ground and the plates are falling all around her, shattering. She's got stonework and glass. She's got glass embedded into her skin and she is bleeding on the floor. And she crawls out, Dad, Dad, help! And what do you think that father did? Did he say, hey, can you, can you pick up that glass for me really quick so I can get in there to you? You think he said, hey, take that glass outside of yourself, stop your bleeding, that way you don't get blood on my shirt, and I can bring you to where it's safe. No, he didn't even stop to put socks or shoes on. The man's gonna run through the glass, pick up his child, and run her to the couch and drop her, and immediately take the glass out of her wounds. So why do we have a picture of Jesus saying, hey, could you clean up a little bit of that sin first? You're gonna get me all bloody. I really really didn't want to wash this shirt again. We have this depiction and thought, and what we see from the Pharisees here is like, oh, she's a sinner. How could you even talk to her? Sinners are the people that Jesus wants to talk to the most. They are lying on the ground bleeding out. They are calling out for a father. And we have a tendency to say, mm, dramatic much? Now, they wouldn't let me bring glass on stage, but I've got the next most painful thing. So I've got all these Legos, and what we do is we stand in this pile of Legos. And even when we're standing in it, it looks like fun toys, right? It looks like something to have fun with and play around with. But all of us as adults know the second that you step on a Lego, it is the most excruciating pain you've ever felt in your entire life. But it takes an adult or a father to know that sometimes, of like, oh, don't step on those. Those will hurt your feet. But we're standing here surrounded by our sin. And we know that we were invited to the couch with dad. But if we were invited over, we'd have to walk through. And that would hurt. It'd bring us pain. If we're imagining this as glass, we'd have to walk through this glass. And, and sometimes we even think we have to, okay, let me, let me pick up my sin. Let me, let me try to manage it. Let me move this out. We don't have enough room to carry this sin. 
It's just gonna be displaced. It's just gonna fall back to the ground where it is. What we need is a good father who overcomes sin to come in and grab us and carry us out. But for some reason in the church, we actually think like Simon the Pharisee. We think like the religious elite of the time. Like maybe, maybe in this moment, you aren't the woman. Maybe you are willing to come to the table, but you're actually Simon. You invite Jesus to the table. You're willing, but it's because you don't even realize the sin you're in. Simon is in the Lego pile. If there was a glass pile over there, Simon's sitting here, and what we tend to do with our sin is I'm going to take my alabaster jar and I'm going to justify it with this lie, and then I'm going to put this on there, and then, oh, it's okay because I'm going to do this, and we start to build these walls around us. We start to build all of these structures, and we say, look, look what I did. And if you've ever tried to take a child out of playing with their Legos before they're done, what do they do? Scream. Talk about unwilling to leave. Talk about unwilling to come to the table. We sit here and play with our sin because we don't see it as the shards of glass that it is. We don't see the disparity of our sin. We see it as a toy. And we want dad to be proud of what we've built. And so therefore, when he runs to the child who's in glass, we actually get mad. And when you put it like that, it sounds ridiculous, but that's what we're doing. We have this tendency to be like, but, but look at all these things I'm building for you, Dad. Why would you give her the attention? As if there's not enough attention to go around. And Simon, I love this. Simon, in this passage, he says to himself, verse 39, it says, he says to himself, that means in his head. And Jesus, he says, Jesus doesn't know this woman. And as he's saying that, Jesus literally knows his thoughts and says, hey, Simon, can you imagine having your own thought and thinking like something about someone? And they're like, hey, why are you thinking that? Crazy. Says to himself, he calls out Simon where he is. And Simon's standing there. And the, the question I have for you at this point is, are you happy in your mess? Or are you crying out for a savior? Are you happy where you are and unwilling to leave because you're having fun? Or are you crying out because you're literally bleeding on the floor? I love this parable that Jesus tells about the debt because it's a very simple parable of, okay, someone has a lot of debt, it gets forgiven. Someone has a little bit of debt, it gets forgiven. Which is, feels more loved. But for some reason... We don't see it that way, and it's because of our Americanized view, and I was, I was realizing this as I was studying through it. We have a view of debt forgiveness that we have been given from the Western world in America where banks don't just say, you know what? Don't worry about it. You don't have to pay it. It's forgiven. We come from a society that says, you know what? I'll give you $10,000 towards that debt. The government, with student loans recently, has been like, you know what, I'll give you ten dollars or $20,000 towards that debt. And in that scenario, the person with the least debt gets it all forgiven and is happier. But the person with the more debt is like, why didn't I get more? 
That barely dents what I've done. And that's how we think about God's grace, that he has a base amount of grace for every single person that we come into contact with. And his $10,000 worth of grace covers my sin, but it doesn't cover hers. It doesn't cover that addiction. It only covers my sin. It doesn't cover that baby out of wedlock. It just covers my sin. And that's not how grace works. Paul says in Romans, um, I believe it's, I have it referenced here somewhere. Romans 5, 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The more sin there is, the more grace there is to be had. So my last question for you is, do you believe that God has enough grace to forgive all sins or just a base amount of sin? Does he cover everyone's sin for all time here and thereafter? Or just like a a base amount and then we have to do the rest of the work ourselves? Or we have to do the rest of the work before we can even come to the table? You see, God meets you where you are in your sin. In your glass shards, in your Legos, God meets you where you are. And I think we have a tendency to take that too far and say God loves you for who you are or you are enough. Something I hear a lot. If you were enough, why did Jesus have to die? You're taking away the glory of Jesus if you say that you're enough, because you're not. But God does love you where you are. He doesn't love you for who you are. He loves you for who you were created to be. You are the imago Dei. That means image of. We see it all through scripture. You are the image of God. You are a piece of him, his holiness, his mercy, his grace. You are a piece of it. Everybody say imago Dei. That's the part of you that Jesus loves. And he loves you where you are when you're sitting here broken, but all you have to do is be willing. And one reason we're not willing is because we know if we're willing to come to the table, it means we're gonna have to leave different. We can't just come to the table with our sin, have him pull the glass shards out of our skin, and then run back to the glass pile and do a belly flop. What kind of child would do that? We shouldn't have to remind the children, hey, don't go belly flop into the glass. The pain should be enough the first time that they learn their lesson. And yet God, time and time again, says, hey, repent of your sin. Please repent of your sin. Continue repenting from your sin. Quit getting in the glass pile. But he's never gonna stop coming to get you. And so as we transition into this next time of worship, I want you to think about who you are in this story. Are you the woman feeling unwelcome? And also unwilling? Do you need to be more willing to come to the table knowing that when you come to the table, you're gonna get told about your sin and you either leave with more sin because you now know it's sin or you leave healed and forgiven of that sin? Are you the Pharisee Simon? Do you need to do a better job of welcoming people to the table? You know personally how hard it is to be willing when you feel unwelcomed at the table. What would happen if we as a church welcomed everyone in this community to the table? Do you know how much more willing 
the people standing on the street corner begging would be to meet their savior, Jesus, if they were just welcomed to a dinner table? And that's my challenge. And when you get your little meal card on your way out the doors today, the challenge is for that meal, invite someone to the table that, you, that has no business at your table, if we're being honest. Invite that, that neighbor who can't seem to keep his mouth clean or that person whose life is falling apart and has a divorce. Invite those people to your table. Help them to feel welcome so that they might be more willing. Because right now they're just rolling around in the glass and don't even realize there's a savior willing to come and get them where they are. So as the band comes up and starts to play, we're gonna do something a little bit different. And I would love to, for everyone who is physically able to go to your knees. And the reason I wanna do this is we're about to commune with Jesus. We have communion tables set up where we can take communion and feel who Jesus is and understand, but we have to know when we're going to that table, we cannot leave the same. And so I wanna do what that woman did and fall to our knees at the feet of Jesus. And I want you to just bring everything you have. Maybe it's repentance from sin. Maybe it's confession of your sin. Maybe it's that you have blessings in your life and you're like, God, how can I use these? I want you to bring all of that so, to the Lord. Look at me when you're ready to start playing. And as you feel led and as you feel ready, please stand up and come partake in communion. Come and dine with Jesus. Come and be a part of the table with Jesus. Dear God, I thank you that you come and save us from our sin. That it's not our job to pick up the glass and make our hands bleed trying to earn a spot at your table. But that, Lord, you come and meet us and that all we have to do is be willing. God, I pray that there will be a willingness in these people. I pray that, that your church, the church at Grace Monroe, will have a willingness to come to you and the ability to welcome others into that willingness. God, we thank you for being our Savior. I pray as we come to the table with you today, as these people come to the table with you today, they cannot leave the same. They must be changed in some form or fashion, Lord. God, we love you and we praise you for the good father that you are. Allow us to not see our sin as Legos. Allow us to not play like mud pies because we don't understand the glory that, behold, that we have when we behold you. Lord, let us see it as a life call as we bleed out on the ground that sin is no joke, that our sin is slowly killing us. God, we love you and we thank you.